Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. We're in chambers this week, clearing the docket. And with me, as always, is the star of the podcast, The Hollywood Handbook, ah. Judge John Hodgman. You should, I won't say anything, go check it out. I appeared on Hollywood Handbook, and it was quite a quite an emotional journey. Yeah, wonderful podcast. Sean and Hayes. Shout out to Sean and Hayes. But Jesse, hello. Hello, John. Spring sprang in Brooklyn. Woke up this morning with the window open a little bit. Chilly, but nice. Sound of a morning dove yelling outside my window. I've never heard a louder. <laughs> you know, a morning dove is a pretty low-key dove. You know what I mean? It's a pretty low-key member. A lot of pigeons will go, and a morning dove kind of goes. Yeah, it's not to be confused with that all-night dove. Right. That thing's wiling. Yeah, maybe this one had been up all night. Maybe this one had gotten into a supply of my my son's energy drinks or something left out on the, on the in the yard. But it sounded like this. Ah! Ah! I'm like, what is that sound? My family tells me it's a morning dove. But it woke me up out of a big dr- a dream. I used to have the most boring dream. This is dream journal time, Jesse. This is everyone's favorite part of every podcast. That's it right. comes. It's the segment that comes right before podcasters discuss Los Angeles outdoor shopping mall, The Grove. <laughs> Itself a dream. A dream of return yeah. to a time that was somewhat normal. Yeah, no, I've been... Pretend streetcar carries you 800 feet. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for that. That's a dream. I, uh, you know, normally my dreams are I was walking down the street and then I was trying to make um, a, a reservation for a rental car and I couldn't get it to, to take my date of birth. And then I wake up screaming. Mm-hmm. It's the worst dream I have, not being able to fill out forms properly. But the, my dreams have gotten a little bit more intense. You have any intense dreams lately? What did you dream last night, Jesse Thorne? Yeah, I did. I have had some intense dreams. The most recent really intense dream was I was thinking about changing the furniture in my house Mm. to be more traditional. So my wife and I went to an antiques auction. Sure. And to get to the antiques auction, we had to take, do you know those kind of like bus trains that you have to take at the airport sometimes? I only know fake streetcars that take me 800 feet. So no. It's sort of like that, but like 50% more Tron. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so like we had second. to take one of those bus shuttles like at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., and it took us to uh, the auction, and we sat down, and it was in kind of an amphitheater. Yeah. And sitting next to me was Holly Hunter, and sure. I was so happy to see Holly Hunter. I'm the biggest Holly Hunter fan. Well, you interviewed her on Bullseye, did you not? I- and she was such a joy, such a delight, a dream, and so appropriate yeah. in contrast to Dream Holly Hunter, who in front of my wife was hitting on me relentlessly. <laughs> Just would not take no for an answer. Yeah. Holly Hunter. Yeah. Uh, look, that's kind of who my, among us that's kind of my who dream among, too. <laughs> who among us would not consider ourselves lucky to be hit on by Holly oh. Hunter, but I'm a happily married man. I was there with my wife. Right, awkward And situation. I was like, simmer down, Holly Hunter. And it got so bad that I missed bidding on this armoire that I wanted to buy. <laughs> this truly sounds such, yeah. such a Jesse Thorne dream mirror, dream nightmare. I know. I know. Um, but you were dreaming about something that you aren't able to do yet. We, we hope we are moving forward back into those times when we can gather together and bid on armoires. My dream was about a big dinner at a restaurant, unmasked, 
And it was in this dream, it was a big publishing dinner party uh, that had that had been uh, you know had been canceled last year, and we were all back after the pandemic, and it was after some kind of publishing uh, award ceremony. I don't know. I, it was a it was a fake event, but I just remembered in the dream. Oh, I did this two years ago, and it was great. But now I'm here at this big, long, long, long table, in a restaurant, uh, and I'm at one end of the table, and I'm all by myself. It's like a banquet and chairs, and it's unbalanced, so I'm at the. I'm the odd end of the chairs because there's no one in front of me. I'm by myself. And down at the other end of the table, they're getting all of the food and all of the drink, and I'm getting nothing. But also at the other end of the table are all the people that I don't want to talk to or get trapped into a conversation with, especially in a banquet situation where there's no escape. So I'm at my end of the table with no food, but people that I like. But then the people that I like leave. They got to go run an errand. And I'm sitting there all by myself, feeling completely abandoned, thinking there's no way to go back to normal, to my old life of publishing industry dinners where I I didn't have to pay. I'm just abandoned by the past. And then you know what happens in my dream is a group of really nice young guys, kind of in their 20s, and they're this college team of like rugby players or something. And they may even have been like, Scottish or Irish. They were just really adorable. And they all sat down in the banquet in front of me because there was nowhere else to sit in this restaurant. They didn't realize that this was a private party. And they all sat in front of me. And you know what I said to these guys, Jesse? What's that, John? Get out of there. Get out. This isn't your <laughs> this isn't your table. <laughs> the friend- that is Susan Orlean's seat. She <laughs> might come back to talk to me. I said the friends who abandoned me might come back. And the nice guys are like, oh, okay, sorry. I'm like, go go to a different restaurant. There are no seats here for you. Do you see the placard there that says Mary Roach? <laughs> totally. And then my friends, it wasn't Susan Orlean or Mary Roach. They would never do that to me. I know I know which friends left. They know which friends left and didn't come back. And then finally, I'm if back. You're one at, of those lever friends, and you're listening right now. You know who you are. Yeah, right. Finally, at the end of the dream, one person, an acquaintance from the far end of the table, comes down to check up on me. And he just leans over and he says this really funny thing. He said, My book sold more copies than Vacation Lane and Medallion Status combined. <laughs> That's pretty standard publishing dinner banter in the real world. That's how we talk. Yeah. But I woke up screaming like a morning dove. You know what I mean? Ah! <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Let's get into the docket. Here's something from Jeff. My wife and I enjoy watching Jeopardy. Of course, when we know the response, we both enjoy saying it out loud as if we were playing the game too. I want to be a contestant on this show one day, so I insist on waiting until the host has finished reading the clue before responding and responding in the form of a question. However, my wife will usually say the correct response as soon as she knows it. Worse, she doesn't put it in the form of a question. For instance, if the clue was, this radio personality is the co-host and bailiff of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, my wife would say, Jesse Thorne, instead of the correctly phrased, who is Jesse Thorne? You don't have to work hard to find somebody to say, who is Jesse Thorne? I'll tell you that much right now. Please order my wife to wait until the host has finished reading the clue and then answer in the form of a question. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. This is um, 
This is a tough one. Um, uh, Jesse, um, I'd like to use my phone a friend. Okay. My phone a friend sure. option. Okay. Sure. Well, if we're playing by Jeopardy rules, absolutely. <laughs> right? It's part of the game. Everyone knows. Let's just see here. Elliot Kalen. Our friend Elliot Kalen from the Flophouse and Ipodius was, you know, he was on Jeopardy. So I'd like to get his, his take on this. Let's see if I can get him. Let's see if we can get him on the phone. Come on, Elliot. Well, at least he hasn't declined me yet. Hi, you reached Elliot Kalen. I'm not here at the moment. I'm on the phone turned off, so please leave a message and I'll get right back to you. Thank you. Tone, okay. I know what to do. I've been, I've been alive for 50 years. Yeah, I know. I know. Elliot, it's John Hodgman from the Judge John Hodgman Podcast. I'm here with bailiff Jesse Thorne and producer Jennifer Marmer. Look, we've got a question about Jeopardy. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. Um, I guess you're busy right now, but if but if you can call back, uh, I'd really need your help on this one. Thanks very much, Elliot. This is, you're my friend and I'm phoned you. Bye. Oh, man. John, does this make me Regis Philbin? Of course it does. Yes. Of course it does. You've always been yes. Regis Philbin. Yes, that's why I'm wearing this silver necktie with this silver shirt. That's right. In you've the silver necktie and a silver shirt in a 1928 photo from New Year's Eve at the Overlook Hotel. You've always been Regis Philbin. Of course you have. Yes. All right. We'll see if we'll see if Elliot calls back. We'll hold this one to see if Elliot calls back and we can get his insight on this. Whew. But meanwhile, do we have another case we can hear while we're waiting for Elliot? Yeah, here's a case from Kurt. I would like you to issue a judgment against my wife for regularly criticizing one of my recurring comedic shticks. Oh, no. <laughs> Rarely does it go off the rails in the first <laughs> sentence. An homage to the 1983 comedy Trading Places. Mm-hmm. Which film is, we will admit somewhat, uh, this is an inter- editorial interjection, right. a, a great but problematic film. Uh, if you would like to problematize it, uh, send your least favorite scenes to Hodgman at Maximum. Whoa, Club. thanks. Thanks very much. I guess it's, I guess I deserve it for yeah. hearing this case. In this role reversal themed film, after Dan Aykroyd's character sees Eddie Murphy's character being driven in his Mercedes wearing his Harvard tie... Aykroyd's character says, he was wearing my Harvard tie. Can you believe it? My Harvard tie. Like, oh, sure. He went to Harvard. That was my famous Dan Aykroyd impression. (laughs) Incredible. 38 years later, whenever I see someone wearing clothing advertising a college or university, I say in a spot on Lewis Winthorpe voice, like, oh, sure, he went to Mississippi State or... Well, I should do the voice. Oh, sure, he went to Mississippi State. Or, oh, sure, she went to Simmons. <laughs> Classic Dan Aykroyd voice, whatever the case may be. Upon hearing this, my wife rolls her eyes and groans. Your Honor, she thinks my shtick is derivative and tiresome. I say it's an original twist on a classic line that's funny because it's so oft-repeated. Please order my wife to cease rolling her eyes. 
Yeah, I I got this one and I chose to only remember Trading Places rather than rewatch it. Yeah. I have memory enough to know that it is uh, complicated and problematic for all sorts of reasons that were very common in 1983 that are receiving due interrogation now in the present. Fair enough. But I got to say, it is the first movie where I heard the term pork bellies. I got to give it that. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, I mean, almost certainly the top comedy commodity. That's right. Right. I mean, it's it's not as, I mean, there's no way frozen concentrated orange juice features. Well, I don't know, which is funnier. I think maybe they made the right call, uh, uh, Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod in that writing, because pork belly sounds funnier. But the fact that this movie hinges, the the, the climax of the movie hinges on a rousing, short squeeze scene <laughs> involving Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy short shorting uh, uh, or doing some stock manipulation around the futures of frozen concentrated orange juice. I think that's a little funnier. Frozen concentrated orange juice is very, very specific and funny. All right. I'll buy that. And I would say that there's a lot in this movie that probably holds up comedically. Looking good, Lewis, feeling good, whatever, you know. That is comedically sound. Yeah. I think the last time I saw it was probably five years ago, and I was impressed at how much of it uh, held together comedically. The comedies of that era are, are not known for their uh, right. their consistency as films. Yeah. And, I mean, it is itself an interrogation of class and race. Yeah. In, in a a rel- ham-handed one or sure. a pork-bellied one. Yeah. But you, the, it's, in, its intentions are clear. Obviously... You know, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is someone I love as a performer, her her career, she admits, was completely changed by this movie. It got her out of horror movies and into A Fish Called Wanda and onto a, an incredible career in, in, in different ways. It's, it, it's supposedly, you know, without Trading Places, we only would have had Dr. Detroit, Dan Aykroyd's movie career would not have taken off and we never would have gotten Nothing But Trouble, which is a movie... I find to be a lot more problematic and comedically unsound. So, so don't watch that one either. It's a real comedic Titanic. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that, so comedically though, at least what I recall from it, including this joke holds up. Would, would you say that this joke in the context of trading places holds up? The Dan Aykroyd yeah, going, sure. oh I mean, sure, like a, he went to Harvard. Yeah, it's a it's a satire of... Uh, Dan Aykroyd's character's perspective. Yeah, he's an insufferable snob. Makes yeah. presumptions about people based on what they look like and where they come from. What we call a Harvard man. <laughs> I went to a different college. Mm-hmm. So what's happening though, Jesse? Because you so are... did I. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, can we do a remake of Trading Places where we're the Mortimer brothers? Yes, please. Okay. You know, there was a guy at my college who always wore a Harvard sweatshirt. The same one over and over again, or he had a variety of them? I think he just had the one, and he would wear it. He would wear it. You'd be, you'd be, you'd say, dude, this is UC Santa Cruz. Right. What is this? What is the symbolism of this sweatshirt? Right. Does your older brother go there? Right. Like, what does this mean? What does it mean? What is the? And this is, I think, it speaks exactly to the question here. Like when you, when someone wears a Harvard sweatshirt or a Harvard sweater at UC Santa Cruz, it's saying something, but you don't know what it's saying. 
right? Yeah, I talked to him about it. It says that he loved social dancing, something called social dancing. Was he Was he wearing a raccoon coat and a boater hat as well? Is social <laughs> dancing he, some kind of and, 1920s? Uh, I think about it when college? I talked to him, he was sitting on a flagpole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got a bold goldfish under his arm. You know, he fell out of a telephone booth and mentioned to me. Well, you know, Jesse, I enjoy social dancing. It's my famous Thurston Howell III invitation. But I'm un, like, my instinct was when when I heard this bit about Kurt's shtick, like, I get it. That's That's a funny riff on a classic joke. I could see how that could be funny. I could see that that would be funny. But... Then I kind of dug into it a little bit more deeply, and I'm like, well, what what is this joke doing? We know what the Dan Aykroyd joke is doing. It is, pre- it is presenting the point of view of an insufferable snob. But Jesse, you're a student of comedy and a practitioner. You're a practitioner student. Yeah, I'm a student and practitioner of comedy and a student and practitioner of American studies at UC Santa Cruz. There you go. So if you were to unpack Kurt's inversion or version of this joke what is it doing from your point of view bothering his wife <laughs> you're saying that in, intrinsically it has no comedic value whatsoever the premise of this joke is that he is upsetting the person he loves most in the world <laughs> well if you're talking about me john hodgman you're right I'm a little upset by this joke in a way I didn't expect to be at first, because at first I was like, okay, I get that you take pleasure out of it because you're repeating a bad joke in front of your wife. And it's that kind of anti-humor of constant repetition of the dumbest thing. But intrinsically, I was kind of like, it was kind of funny to go like, oh, sure. He went to blah, 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 like whatever it was, you know, like, and if it's a random sample of college regalia that will trigger Kurt's joke. I'm going to tell you, Jesse, I'm into it. I think that's kind of it's stupid and annoying, but kind of funny. If every, whatever the college or university is that they see, if it's a random application of, of quote unquote snobbery or performative snobbery, that's funny. But I'm curious about the examples that Kurt gave. Mississippi State. And Simmons College, now Simmons University in Massachusetts. I'm not sure whether he's making fun of snobs or being one. Is he trying to suggest, is the inversion of the joke that it would be stupid to be snobby about going to Mississippi State, which I don't know anything about that institution, but I'm I'm sure it has its pros and its cons. And the people who go there, go there in good faith, trying to get an education and better themselves. Like, why would we make fun of that? particular institution you know i hope you're not out there kurt making fun of any of the incredible alums from simmons college like gwen eiffel of pbs Newshour, american journalistic hero or barbara margolis a prisoner's rights advocate who served as the official greeter of new york city i'm sure you're not making fun of simmons college which first admitted black students in 1914 and eschewed all racial and religious quotas and was one of the most accepting universities or colleges at this time or that you're making i'm sure you're not making fun of women's women focused undergraduate education in general i mean i hope that you're not kurt but only you know that 
So I would say this, just as it's important to analyze trading places, and probably while we're at it, Jesse, we should probably reanalyze, analyze this and analyze that. Who knows? Who knows what's going on? I don't remember those movies. I didn't see them. But just as it's important to make sure that you're being careful with your comedy and to, and to, and to analyze it, I, I encourage you, Kurt, before you make this joke again, to look at what your premise is and make sure it's saying what you want it to say. And I would say, until you do that, I order a stay of making this joke for one calendar year. Uh, 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 you are prohibited from making this joke for one year. Give your wife a well-deserved break while you explore your comedic premises. And also, what else should I punish him with, Jesse? One day a week. Most likely Saturday if he's a churchgoer, Sunday if he isn't. He has to wear a Harvard sweatshirt, a hoodie, you know, the burgundy kind. <sighs> wow. And then one evening a week, a Harvard tie? I mean, sure, surely that's got to be. Well, yeah, he has to wear a Harvard tie to the club. <laughs> <laughs> Producer Jennifer Marmer, has Elliot Kalen called back yet? Not yet. Okay, keep an eye out. I really want to answer that question. We're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's partners. We'll be back with more cases to clear from the docket on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. You're listening to Judge John Hodgman. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Of course, the Judge John Hodgman podcast always brought to you by you, the members of MaximumFun.org. Thanks to everybody who's gone to MaximumFun.org slash join, and you can join them by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Babbel. Okay, it's 2024. Oh, if hindsight were 2020, I, I don't know what I would have done differently. All I know is that I'm taking every day in this year and trying to get better a little bit every day. That's what you do. That's the way progress is made, step by step, day by day, bird by bird. And that's the way it is when you're learning anything especially a new language with Babbel. And if Babbel can help you start speaking language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in the rest of this whole year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars to private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts, real human beings, to help you start speaking a new language in as little as one, two, three weeks. Studies from Michigan State University Yale University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. And that's not just the Yale football team putting their thumb on the scale because they love learning Indonesian from Babbel. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Take that, Yale, I guess. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but this is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Hodgman. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Aura, A-U-R-A. It's a simple but meaningful gift that you can give your mom or your dad or your step-grandparent or your uncle or your friend or anyone that you want to keep connected in your life who might not live near you. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things that those friends can't be there for, from family vacations to grandkids' graduation to whatever. I have one of these, and I got one for my dad. 
And I got one for my mother-in-law. And it's amazing. We look at the photos all day long and we're able to easily update their Aura frames so they see all the latest pictures from our lives as well. It comes with unlimited storage, simple controls on the frame. You can upload as many photos as you want and your mom or your dad or your stepdad or your stepmom or your friend or whatever can pick the perfect one. And it takes only about two minutes to set up, seriously. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, uh, The Strategist, and Wired Magazine. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code Hodgman. That's A-U-R-A frames.com, promo code Hodgman. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We're clearing the docket and we have a case here from Laura. Road trips, stop anytime for fun things and take your time or break land speed records with no brakes whatsoever. Judge, please settle this dispute. Thank you. Whoa, Laura, swiftest question ever. She did not stop at the road stop to pee on that one. No, she made a land speed record. With that question, she always travels with a Gatorade bottle. There was na- there was nary a, I beseech thee, Judge John Hodgman, to be found. You know, no ten dollar words, all good solid three dollar words, five buck words, I'll say. And an interesting dispute, Jesse. Do you have an instinctive reaction to Laura's question? I'm always torn on this issue. I know, right? That's why it's a good one for me. When it is me. I am glad to stop wherever. Elliot Kalen's on. Elliot Kalen's on. Oh, well, Laura, you'll have to wait because my friend called back. (laughs) Elliot Kalen, it's John Hodgman. Thank you for calling in. Uh, As you know, I host the Judge John Hodgman podcast and uh, we are, you and I are friends. You're on the Flophouse podcast, also a member of Maximum Fun. And Mm -hmm. uh, we co-hosted the um, the iPodius uh, miniseries on Maximum Fun. But one thing I know about you, aside from the things that I just said. Thank you, thank you, John, for reminding Elliot that the two of you have met. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I would hope that the, that the listeners to this show have the context to understand who Elliot Kalen is in my life. And I know one other fact about Elliot that I'd like to share. You went on Jeopardy as a contestant with yes. Ken Jennings as the host. Yes. A lifelong dream come true. We were talking about our dream journals earlier. Oh, that's very sweet. Had you ever dreamed of being on, like literally had a dream of being on Jeopardy as you were going through the intense preparation to become a Jeopardy contestant? I mean, by dream, do you mean like an actual sleeping dream or a fantasy, like a daydream? A sleeping dream. I did not, surprisingly, I did not have any any sleeping dreams. I think all of my anxiety about appearing on Jeopardy was channeled through the anxiety dreams I already have, which are about I'm at the Daily Show offices and it's rehearsal time and I don't have a script ready. And I'm like, I don't even work here anymore. Why am, why am I responsible for this script right now? <laughs> so I think I just had more of those. Classic. Yeah. My nightmare of going back to high school as an adult and not having prepared for the class has been replaced. I'm now up to working at the literary agency and being like, why am I here again? Okay. I'm, in, I'm <laughs> yeah. in my late 40s. What happened? It's I've not gotten to the Daily Show yet. Your dream career. life really lags behind your real life in a noticeable way. Dramatically, yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till I get that Daily Show dream. Oh, that'll be so sweet. I wonder if it's because your mind understands how fragile it is and that if you were dreaming about what was actually going on in your life, you wouldn't know 
uh, as the great sage uh, once said, whether you are dreaming or awake, you know, whether you're – right now you don't know whether you are a man who used to be on The Daily Show dreaming you work at a literary agency or a man who works at a literary agency dreaming that you used to work at The Daily Show. Is this how you introduced yourself on Jeopardy? It is. Uh, they edited most of it out. At the end of the show, they say uh, portions not not uh, impacting the gameplay have been edited, and a lot of it was me trying to trying to just <laughs> meditate on life. In the end, it just was you saying, "Yeah, I am a comedy writer." <laughs> uh, Elliot, here's the dispute. This dispute is brought to us by Jeff. He and his wife enjoy watching Jeopardy. Jeff would like to be on Jeopardy at mm-hmm. some point in the future. When they're watching the show. They, as many people do, play along. And when they know the response, not the answer, of course, because the response is a question, Mm -hmm. they will yell it out. But Jeff's wife does not wait until the answer is finished. Jeff's Uh, wife does not wait until the prompt is over. And Jeff's wife does not always use the question form of an answer. I was wondering if when you said Jeopardy question, I was wondering if it was going to be about someone answering before the question is finished being read. Right. Like uh, because you, like that you is, just like you just uh, tried to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Well, because I'm going to say I'm guilty of the same exact thing. Yeah. I'm a much faster reader than anyone else in my family, so I know the answer right away, and I want to shout it because I want to make sure that my family, who already knows that I'm smart, but I need to know emotionally <laughs> yeah, that they to, know that I'm smart. You need to know that they know Specifically that smarter than them. <laughs> and smarter than them on that one particular thing. And sometimes smarter I remember it, there was one time- a six-year-old, for example. Well, one time we were watching Jeopardy, and it was a question about Larry Niven's Ringworld, a book that I know nobody in my family has read or heard of except yeah. for me. And I still yelled it out ahead of time as if I had to get there, just in case my seven-year-old had, had decided to get dip into 70s science fiction lately. You know? Did you yell out, Larry Niven's Ringworld, or did you yell out, what is Larry Niven's Ringworld? Well, I th- Larry Niven was in the clue, so I just said, what is Ringworld? Okay. And I mm-hmm. gave them a real look like, mm. Yeah. Okay. And your, and and your son I, Sammy and, said, well, I recently dipped into 70s science fiction. <laughs> and <laughs> Ringworld is... And he was, he was like, well, Dad, tell me, who were the Ringworld engineers? Who built it? And I was like, I haven't read that far in the series. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, I, so I totally sympathize with that. I would say that not answering in the form of a question... It feels like if you have agreed ahead of time as a, as a Jeopardy watching unit that that right. is okay, then I would say it's okay. But obviously on the show, you would not get the points. And as they tell you in round one, single Jeopardy, they may nudge you. They may prod you to say it in the form of a question. But in double Jeopardy round, they will not prod you. The training wheels are off. If you don't remember to say it as a question, you're just losing that money. Dunzo. And then someone else is going to scoop up and take it by adding what is or who is to the front. Because here's the secret. It doesn't matter if the question that you ask is grammatically correct. You could say, when is Ben Franklin? They got to take it because it's <laughs> technically a question. That's not, you know? no, they don't have, you're trying to destroy they, the competition. No, they, they tell you, you're mounting ahead of time. You're mounting a return to the podia and you're just no, trying no, to I, psych I, people out, including Jeff. Elliot, could, could you just answer, is Ben Franklin? <laughs> I don't think that would be acceptable. <laughs> but they, they say they're like, it doesn't matter if it's the right question front. It just has to be a question because uh, they know people get nervous. Uh, I think. It's it all depends on, in my opinion, on how you get the uh, how you agree on the rules ahead of time. But if it is really bothering the person you're playing with to that you're not waiting until the clue is finished being read, and again, this is something I've been guilty of many times, then it feels like you're kind of not playing fair with them. You're taking unfair advantage of how fast your eyes work. You know, could it 
hurt Jeff's training to be a Jeopardy contestant? Like, for example, I refuse to play Words with Friends because I don't believe in Words with Friends. I believe in Scrabble with Enemies. And I don't (laughs) want the extra letters, the extra, the, the location and the number of double and triple word scores squares to mess up my my knowledge and memory of the board and the probabilities. Mm. So I won't. I don't mm. want to pollute my mind. Is is Jeff's wife polluting his mind by not playing the game the way the game is played? She certainly might be throwing off his internal timing of when he needs to be ready to answer the question. Possibly. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, this is what. One of the things that tripped me up on uh, when I was on Jeopardy, but this and also the fact that one of the other contestants was just much better at it than me. Uh, the the other contestant was, I think, we were at the, about the same level. So there's that you have to get the timing of when you buzz in to answer, and it's right. very difficult to do. In theory, you buzz in when the person when the, the host is finished reading the question, but really you kind of want to like jump it by a fraction of a second so that you can get in in between the time when. The buzzers are opened up and before anybody else does. And so I think it's going to hurt his timing if she is answering the question super early because he's going to start thinking that he has to buzz in halfway through the, the clue being read when really you want to buzz in like as close to the, to the end of it as humanly possible. Are you suggesting this couple should get marital buzzers? I mean, uh, that which now there's marital buzzers could be more than one item. We're talking about. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the, you mean. Jeopardy. <laughs> Jeopardy. Yeah. Oh, Je- Jeopardy, Jeopardy ones. Where marital I, think they call them I mean, Jeopardy sig- does they- have a licensed line of marital buzzers. Of, of marital help buzzers, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, in Jeopardy, they refer to them, I believe, as signaling devices. So I think maybe they should get a marital set of signaling devices. Uh, two, two devices and then maybe a third in case they want to expand the family at some point. And... Uh, then they yeah, and they should just play it that way. If they did, that would actually be much better practice for Jeff. I should have done that uh, when I was practicing, and I found out that instead of dominating the, uh, your children, you should have used a marital or a family <laughs> exactly. signal device. Should have used a signaling device. Uh, the the um, the guy who who was the champion when I was on, he said at one point he's like, oh yeah, well uh, I found a, a used signaling device that was similar to the one used on Jeopardy, and I practiced on that, and I was like, well, he certainly wanted this more than I did because I did not go to that length. I, I'll I'll wrap a bunch of masking type around a pen, around a click pen, to make it feel like a buzzer device, but I I didn't go all the way to buying a used one. So I think yeah, and I think you know what I think this could bring back a certain. Um, enjoyable competitiveness to their relationship mm-hmm. where neither has an edge it's a le- it's a level playing field i don't like the way you're wagging more... your eyebrows when you say enjoyable mm, no, and be... competitiveness <laughs> because no the, the way that like Kalen's um, getting you know, saucy in a way that makes me a little uncomfortable no no just in the way where you see you see movies about like married thieves who are always trying to out or married con men who are always trying to like outsmart each other you right know? and that's how they keep things the spice alive you yeah know? as opposed to how you would keep the spice alive in the dune universe which is by going no, to the planet stop it. can and- we can you mute him <laughs> can you mute him jennifer mute him immediately yeah. we don't need this we don't need to go down this sandworm hole <laughs> elliot kalen what is the exact ruling that i was planning to give that's my answer and it's correct that one that you said <laughs> thank you what is you. and then and then all the stuff i said yeah and when is it elliot don't go away <laughs> real quick here we go this is from laura i want you to weigh in on this because we were we were just getting into this when you called thank you for calling by the oh, way sure oh my pleasure i and i apologize i wasn't there when you uh when you when you first called and left the message 
um, I was, it was personal stuff. You don't need to know about it. Oh, right, I'll tell you. Oh, I boy. was uh, I was just reliving the questions I got wrong on Jeopardy and telling myself, <laughs> kicking myself about not answering correctly. Give me, give me the answer that you, the response that you wish you had given when you're falling asleep and you think of this response that you should have given and it wakes you up and you don't sleep for the rest of the night. I mean, to be honest, what really makes me fall, what really keeps me up is other episodes where there were questions, there were better Final Jeopardies that I would have gotten, and I'm like, why didn't I get that one? But uh, so the Final Jeopardy question, you were supposed to name the biggest and smallest countries that border the Mediterranean Sea, and I did not have enough time to think through it, so I just started writing down the names of countries, and I realized after the fact I should have written a joke answer to save face in that moment, and I should have written what is a very big country and a very little country, (laughs) and I'm kicking myself that I didn't didn't do that dumb joke. Let me tell you something. (laughs) That would have been a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been you would have been so despised on the Jeopardy message boards. Yeah, they don't yeah. like it when you don't take it seriously. No. Yeah. There's only one great joke triumph in the history of Jeopardy, and it's the time that my friend Louis Vertel got a double oh, Jeopardy boy. right and did snaps. Oh, I have I have heard this story so many times from Jesse. I'm gonna say because it's, it's one of the greatest things. Story. I've, I admire <laughs> Louis Vertel, one of the funniest, brightest guys out there, and I admire that he got that double Jeopardy right and threw up some snaps. There was a daily double that uh, I wish I had gotten because that that uh, one of the other contestants got. It was a question about Fiddler on the Roof, a musical that is a very important one to my family. We watch it multiple times a year. Sure. And I was so mad that I didn't get we it. We should mention question- that Elliot's family are fiddlers. I should mention, yeah, we uh, it's it's because well, we're ethnically fiddlers. We're kind of like culturally fiddlers. We don't practice. Um, <laughs> I haven't touched so you're, the fiddling. You're, ba- you're bad at it. You're bad at fi- you're yeah. bad at playing the violin. Bad at fiddling. I mean, I practiced. I, I went to fiddle school from age nine to thirteen. That I had my I had my I had my bow mitzvah, and then after that, I just <laughs> haven't touched the fiddle. You're also pretty yeah. bad at being but, on the roof because I can see right now on the Zoom, you're inside a house. That's again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're fiddlers under the roof now. Yeah. Uh, it's but uh, all right. Fiddler the, on the I roof. Was, quesh. So the answer was just what is fiddler on the roof, and if I had answered it. I, I think about this sometimes. I would have answered it like Tevya says Fiddler on the Roof in the in the show, and I would have said, What is Fiddler on the Roof? Because that's how he says it at the beginning of the at the beginning of the show. And it would have gotten a big laugh. My grandma would have would have enjoyed that. <laughs> I think that that is just corny enough to actually get a big laugh and buy in from the Jeopardy message boards. But on the other <laughs> one it. you dodged a bullet on the other one. Don't feel bad okay, about that. Okay, that's fair. Uh, okay, what is Gibraltar and Egypt? How'd I do? It's uh, it's Monaco and Algeria. Oh, ouch. Algeria is the biggest country in Africa, which I knew, but I wouldn't put two and two together. And right. And Monaco's just this tiny little place that just exists for rich people to store their money. Uh, you know. Speaking. But anyway, of, so what was what did Laura write in about? So, speaking of Monaco, Monaco is the home of the Grand Prix race car race where you are trying to break a land speed record. But Laura asks road trips. <laughs> Stop any time for fun things and take your time or break land speed records with no break whatsoever. Please settle this dispute. Jesse Thorne was just saying when it's himself, he's happy to stop and explore whatever vicissitudes of landscape uh, or his own mind uh, come up. Uh, Maybe stop at a little rest stop, right? Or a a tourist attraction. I like to stop at the thrift store. If if I see a town that seems big enough to have a thrift store, I'll stop at the thrift store. Yeah. I like to stop at a, a local attraction. That seems fun to me. And I will also drive out of my way to eat 
a, a tasty local food rather than a, a side of the highway fast food. Of course. And the the only one of those that I, I do when I have my children in the car is that last one. I will try and plan some food that is uh, better than fast food. Yeah, that's because that's something you have to stop for no matter what. Right. And even if your children are impatient and they want to get to where they're going. I'm not sure if you've encountered this, Elliot, as a parent, that sometimes little kids are impatient in car trips, constantly <laughs> asking, can we go to that thrift store? Can we go to that thrift store? <laughs> my my children are a little out of the ordinary in that they are incredibly lazy and just like sitting in a car. Uh, nice. Sometimes when we're we're when we're about to go on a six or seven hour drive to my in laws, my son will get in the car very early and just be sitting there because he just can't wait to be in the car. And I'm like, you know, we're not leaving for like forty minutes, and then you're going to be in the car for six hours. And he's like, I just like being here. Well, yeah, right. They've learned not to. Ha- they've learned not to have any ambition or passion in their lives, because their father will just beat them at Jeopardy no matter how hard they try. Exactly. Yeah. So why not just why not just go along for the ride? Let Dad drive the car. But I I was raised as a as a stopping places and looking around. My mother in particular, she, we would go on driving trips, and she would do the research ahead of time where she'd be like. The Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Museum's on the way. Or like, we're, we're gonna go to the we're gonna go to the caviest cave in the USA. We're gonna find out what makes it so cavey. So like, we used to do a lot of that stuff, and I really miss it. And I'm looking forward to doing that when my children are old enough that like, uh, they I think they're gonna get something out of it other than just being bored and ruining my enjoyment of a room full of Hoover Vacuum Cleaners of all makes and models. I mean, I think <laughs> yes. First of all, those are incredible stops, and I definitely, you know, we did iPodius. As a as a thank you podcast, a thank you second job <laughs> to the <laughs> listeners of Max Fun during the, the Max Fun drive a couple of years ago, and and we hope to get together and do a podcast again soon. And I think yeah, yeah, you you and, you and I on the road looking for the caviest cave. That's definitely <laughs> a post pandemic pod that I would like to do with you. So let's mm-hmm. put that oh, on that the on great. the list. But yeah, I, but cave I, boys. I think that. I think the caviest cave is probably the best. That was your line anyway. Why are you trying to? Yeah, yeah. No, no. There is no. There literally is a cave called the cave that bills itself as the caviest cave in America. And so, all right. This is definitely. I can't. I'm so excited. This is going to happen. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But back to Laura's dispute. I think. I think that Jesse and and Elliot are correct. Like, there are a couple of factors. One, do you have buy-in from the rest of the people in the car? Everyone. I like to stop. I like to stop. I'd like to explore. And, uh, and, but you need to get buy-in from the rest of the people in the car. And also it really depends on why you're traveling. Laura asked about a road trip specifically. And for me, road trip implies it's the journey, not the destination. If you're just, if, but if you are just trying to get to Altoona, Pennsylvania, for example, or Vacaville, California, or Atlanta, Georgia, I'm, I'm presuming I'm a mind hunter from the show Mind Hunters. Those are all the places they went. Do you watch? By the way, how old are your kids, Elliot? Uh, they're seven and two. Do you watch Mind Hunter with them yet? Not yet. So uh, sh- show about behavioral sciences and killing people. I mean, the two-year-old might like it. The seven-year-old gets a little squeamish around uh, violence or peril, yeah. but the two-year-old is very into, as he calls it, spooky stuff. Yeah, my so. my, my son is making us watch all of the Mind Hunters. And it was a great show. I had, I had only seen a couple of episodes. I I hadn't really I hadn't really processed that he had already watched the both seasons completely, 
like in two days earlier in the pandemic. He's like, this is a good, this is a good episode. Wait do you see Manson? Wait do you see Manson? <laughs> anyway, um, road trip, road trip means you stop and you take a break. You got to get buy-in from the people in the car. But if you're on a destination trip, then, you know, you want to, you want to keep it fast. You want to keep it swift. I will just give this one shout out though, because Jesse, your impulse to, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll say it again, because I'm not sure that Elliot knows. Your impulse to go get good, interesting local food, even if it takes a little bit of time out of your day. Like when we went to Traveler Food and Books on the way to Boston from New York, uh, uh, it's a great, it's a great, it's on the border of Connecticut and Massachusetts. And it's a, a restaurant that's also a crummy used bookstore and you get a free book with every meal. That's great. But if you are driving from New York or really any point south of Massachusetts to Maine, don't take the 295 cutoff shortcut that the map program will tell you to take to save you seven minutes. Stay on 90, then go north, then right before you go north on 495, stop at the Wendy's in Southboro, Massachusetts. Mark my words. Hearken to me, listeners. There is something about this Wendy's. <laughs> I stopped at this Wendy's. It's just a it's just a normal Wendy's next to a normal Cumberland Farms. And I got this drive through burger. And by the time I hit the New Hampshire border, I was crying. This burger was so delicious. And I've gone, made a point to go back many times. And I've been to other Wendy's and they're not good. But this one is on point every time. So when you're road tripping, stop at the Wendy's in Southboro, Massachusetts. Look it up. You can find it. Any other, besides the caviest cave, Jesse Thorne, any other road trip must-see destinations for when we're back on the road again? I mean, the honest truth is there aren't a lot of good destinations along the road from San Francisco to Los Angeles, which is the one that I most typically take. But I will say that it's... It's worth heading over to Los Banos, um, not to see their famous Banos, uh, but rather to just in- enjoy some decent food. There's uh, there's both a pretty good barbecue place and a uh, uh, a restaurant called the Wool Growers Restaurant, uh, which serves Whoa. Basque food. Uh, now the Basque food of Central and Southern California it has very little to do with the Basque region of Europe. Um, it is it is a very particular kind of family style communal table restaurant that serves um, a variety of interesting foods, among them lamb, and uh, it's very affordable and really tasty. Wool Growers is a great name for a restaurant. Yeah, it's a great restaurant. My children hate it, by the way. Could, could not hate it more. <laughs> Jennifer Marmer, you got any uh, road trip recommendations? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Whoa. Coming from Santa Cruz to Los Angeles, I would often check out in Castroville, the world's largest artichoke statue. It's pretty cool. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so tired of two small artichoke statues. Yeah, um, and I would make a point to drive on the 101 instead of the 5 because it's prettier. And um, always stopped at Madonna Inn in San Luis Obispo to use the bathroom at least. Um, 
wonderful, wonderful hotel. All of the rooms have different themes. It's very floral, very pink. It's, I love it. I love it so much. Pretty extraordinary place. Yeah. Um, All right. I can't wait to go on a road trip with you guys for a, like a maybe a tour, like a Judge John Hodgman tour. Oh, how novel. <laughs> Let's think about that. Let's plan it and stop at all these places and then mm-hmm. maybe not even do any shows. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I'm in. Well, Elliot Kalen, you are the co-host of The Flop House with Dan McCoy and Stuart Wellington here on the Maximum Fun Network with new episodes available every what day? Every Saturday. Every Saturday. Can't every Saturday to- you'll... You'll either get a full-length episode or a mini, which is when we let our hair down and waste everybody's time, even more so than usual. Often the minis are longer than the full lengths. (laughs) It's possible, yeah. Elliot, when you say waste everybody's time, you mean in contrast to when you talk for 90 minutes about the movie Supergirl? Yeah, exactly. So this is, we waste your time more uh, talking about, uh, well, famously, for me at least, is, uh, as has mentioned earlier, uh, uh, there's a book called Dune. And uh, we oh, had no. Tom Brokaw on to talk Jennifer? about Dune oh, and the trailer geez. for about 40 minutes. So, uh, oh. All right. You know what? I'll back off for a second because your 40-minute Tom Brokaw impersonation talking only about Dune was one of the greatest things I've ever had in my ears. Oh, thank you very much. Rivaled only by the time we got to share together with you in my ears on the iPodius podcast. Looking forward to co-hosting with you the new podcast, Caviest of Caves. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it may be. Thank you very much, Elliot, for taking the time to uh, share your opinions here on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Love the show. Love to be on it. It's great. And next time you have a Daily Show dream, I'll be in it. I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> yeah, bad news for you, Rob Riggle. You're out and Hodgman's in. <laughs> yeah, put me in the dream. Put me in the dream. I want to be. In, I want to move forward with my dream life. From the literary, uh, from the literary agency to the Daily Show, and I need you to bring me along, Elliot. Can you do that? I'll I'll try my best. Our thanks to Elliot Kalen. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, another new segment: Frankenstein or no? Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. 
Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. With me, Judge John Hodgman. And here is a case from Rick. My five-year-old daughter was talking me through the cast of the Netflix show Super Monsters. She said that Frankie was a zombie. I corrected her and said he was a Frankenstein. But she insisted any reanimated corpse is a zombie. I read one argument online that zombies are supernatural, while a Frankenstein is reanimated through science. But really, aren't most zombies the result of viruses these days? And viruses are science. Also, does it really matter that a zombie is a single corpse while a Frankenstein is a collection of body parts? For example, if I sew one zombie's head to another zombie's body, is it now a Frankenstein? Mm. I don't want my daughter to make an embarrassing mistake if she ever meets a Frankenstein, so would appreciate you clarifying the position. In other news, your podcast through this pandemic has been a weekly source of comfort, company, and joy, and I cannot thank you, Jesse, and the rest of your team enough. Thank you, Rick. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Rick. That's you, Jennifer, the rest of your team. Yeah, that's Jennifer Marmer. The rest of our team. Thank you, Rick. But this is not the place for praise. This is a place for judgment. But if you, like Rick, do have a story you'd like to share about Maximum Fun and what it means to you, particularly in advance of the Max Fun Drive that's coming up, please share it right to member stories at maximumfun.org or call 323-601-8719. And maybe we will share your story on the air during our Maximum Fun Drive. If you're a Dracula, don't call. You can send a voice memo directly to member stories at MaximumFun.org. If that's easier, just record a voice memo on your phone and right. hit that share button. Right, because remember when I left a voicemail earlier in this episode, it was very, it was, frankly, it got me very nervous. I don't do it very often. I got confused uh, because uh, this is a podcast and uh, you were doing something from 1988. <laughs> like, we might as well say, call that 323 number and you'll reach our answering service. Exactly. But whether you call 323-601-8719 or send a voice memo to member stories at MaximumFun.org, no Draculas, please. We do not need Maximum Fun stories from Draculas. Correct, Jesse? I hate Draculas. Right. So we are not talking about Draculas. We are talking about Frankensteins. Uh, anyone who writes me a letter about Frankenstein's monster, do not expect a response. You know what we're doing. We're talking about Frankensteins. Now, Jesse, I found a photo of this character, Frankie, from the show Super Monsters, and I've sent it to you. In your opinion, this photo, which I got from the fandom.com page for Super Monsters, is Frankie a Frankenstein or no? Frankie is a Frankenstein. Frankie is a Frankenstein? Why, why do you say that? He's green. Mm -hmm. He has stitches on his forehead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He wears a signature striped shirt and shorts combo mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that indicate the tattered clothing of a Frankenstein. Top of the head kind of flat, right? Top of the head is flat. Now, there are no bolts, no bolts. on Frankie's head. Right. Bolts are an important part of the revivification. Bolts are an important part of the revivification. <laughs> bolts are an important part of the revivification. <laughs> leave all this in. <laughs> Please leave this in. Bolts are an important part of the revivic. 
revivification process right. for Frankenstein. They're the, they're, they're the lightning terminals. Yes, that's where you put the lightning into the Frankenstein to make it come to life. Uh, but I mean, I, I presume that that Frankie, being a child, is probably just the chi- the natural born child of two Frankensteins. Well, that's the thing. Here's what I got to tell you, Jesse. Frankie is not a Frankenstein. Sorry. Based on the fandom.com page for Super Monsters. Do not. Not for one moment can you tell me that he is a Frankenstein's monster. Nope. He's not. <laughs> Don't even think about it. According, well, I think technically his last name is Stein, but according mm-hmm. to the fran- fandom.com page for Super Monsters, Frankie is, I quote, he is a half human, half Frankenstein hybrid. That's a direct quote. Wow, like a centaur. Yes, exactly. Like a centaur, Jesse. I think humans should be allowed to marry Frankensteins. Love is love is love is love. I agree. And the, and the fa- fandom.com page for Super Monsters does go to some length to explain Frankie's extended biological family and parentage, which it's odd to think about in Frankenstein lore. I mean, Frankenstein's hugging and kissing to produce live offspring. It's not part of the traditional lore, but I guess it's better than thinking that Frankie is made out of dead children. Sorry, Rick's daughter. Had to go there. You know what I'm talking about. Stitching. Anyway, that's the ruling within the Super Monsters Cinematic Universe, a.k.a. Universal's Light Dark Universe? I don't know. But what about in general, Jesse? What about these arguments? Is a Frankenstein a zombie or no? No, I don't think a Frankenstein is a zombie. Mm. I, I don't think that viruses are science. I think viruses are natural. Right. Okay. I see your point. This is a contagion. We fight viruses with science, right. such as the vaccines that... Uh, everyone is now starting to be able to get and right. I encourage everyone to get but uh, and the flu shots that everyone gets every uh, every fall I hope right um, but uh, no I, I would argue that it's fair to say that that Frankensteins are created by science and specifically animated by electricity um, you got it because I mean, yeah. Frankenstein is the you know the original text in many ways of science fiction like it is the it, it it is that idea of what half man wrought, um, half you know, the, half man or half man. What half, half man <laughs> wrought? It's about a centaur who creates who <laughs> finds a bunch of corpses. Um, makes uh, makes them uh, into Frankenstein's yeah, with his hooves. I, I think that's as good a, an explanation as any. Now the. The definition of a zombie is much looser. Certainly it is rooted in, you know, problematic colonialist ideas about uh, Caribbean religions. Right. Um, But since then, perhaps in part because of that, uh, those problematics, um, the definition of what a zombie can be has branched all over the place in various fiction writers' imaginations. In contemporary worlds, it is it is more of a contagion situation. Yeah. And let's be honest. These things aren't real. These are fictional. Right. They're not like, well, I don't want to say it. Yeah. I mean, these are I. stories. These, these are, stories. are just stories. These are just stories. They're not like the, a real problem. Yeah. Dracula. <sighs> think about it sorry yeah i know sorry you know i don't think uh, look 
This is my take home from this. Yeah. Super Monsters is hardly the worst show on television. Super Monsters is a perfectly nice show. I've seen Super Monsters. I'm not familiar with it, but I take your word for it. It looks very charming. They're, it's a perfectly it it is a charming show. Their it's, fandom it's dot a, com page is very nice. It's no Spirit Halloween fandom page, but it's good. Right. Yeah. I I want to suggest a different children's television show that in name at least is just as as my child Frankie. I have a child named Frankie. Would say Pookie. Mm-hmm. Um, Fra- Frankie Frankie and Gabriel Elliot's uh, son uh, share a love for the Pookie, and. Um, there's a there is a show on the streaming service Netflix uh, called City of Ghosts oh. that my kids have been watching, and it doesn't actually have anything spooky in it. It is uh, the ghosts are the voices of the people in various neighborhoods that the show investigates, and uh, it is as beautiful a children's television show as I have seen in in quite some time. Right. It is an entirely unpatronizing investigation of urban neighborhoods and the people who live there uh, that is that my children genuinely love. From my four-year-old up to my nine-year-old, they they all really like the show, which is very rare. Uh, it's very beautiful. One of the creators, I think, was a longtime uh, Adventure Time employee. Oh, fantastic. Um, so it's it's no surprise given the magic of that show. Uh, but yeah, City of Ghosts on Netflix. I worry that it is too artsy for uh, for too many families and won't get many more episodes. So I hope that it will and I hope everyone will check it out because it's really gorgeous. Created really... by Elizabeth Ito, it says here on the internet. City of Ghosts. Thank you, Elizabeth Ito, for making this beautiful show. Adventure Time, also a great, great show and one that I enjoyed very much with my kids and as well um, Steven Universe, obviously. And now my top recommendation for a kid's show is obviously Mindhunter. Uh, it's yeah. on Netflix. It's about mm-hmm. um, an emotionally uh, challenged uh, person who becomes obsessed with interviewing mass murderers in the in the 1970s. Shall we dip into the mailbag? Let's not dip in. Let's dive in. We have a Fantastic. letter. And the letter, Jesse, is for you. Oh, wow. They sent it to me because every week I repeat my email address, which is hodgman at maximumfund.org. And every week you don't say your email address. Nope. Which is probably a good decision for you. But that means people want to express themselves to you through me. Jacob writes, I greatly enjoyed the most recent episode, 510, my own avocado creation. But I was especially pleased to hear Jesse reference the composer Steve Reich's composition, Different Trains, when deliberating about the pronunciation of crayon crayon i am a music teacher and a big fan of steve reich's music especially different trains music for 18 musicians electric counterpoint etc in the spirit of homage i present to you my own minimalistic creation different crayons in the hopes that this fulfills jesse's plea i'm a big fan of the show thank you for doing all you do jesse you did make a plea after talking about different trains for someone to create a different trains well what was your plea again I think it was I wanted someone to create a different trains-esque composition out of the musicality of the various pronunciations of the word crayon. Crayon. And here's what I have to say. I received more than one letter about people complimenting you on your reference to 
the composition Different Trains, recorded, I now see, in via Wikipedia in 1988 by the Kronos Quartet. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, Different Trains. And on the Reddit, at maximum, r slash Maximum Fun, everyone's talking about Jesse dropping this hot Different Trains ref. And I'll yeah. tell you, in that in that moment on the podcast record, Jesse, and until this very moment, that reference went straight over my head. I would not have gotten a summary judgment in my favor. I had no idea what you were talking about. So for those who still don't know, can you explain a little bit about what Different Trains is and set us up to listen to uh, to Jacob's interpretation of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, Steve Reich is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, composers of uh, new music in the United States or contemporary classical music or, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And one of the things he's best known for is experimenting with media or experimenting with in- instrumentation. And Different Trains is one of his most famous pieces. It is a, a piece composed in part for tape loops. So essentially the story of it is that Steve Reich, uh, when he was a child, his parents were separated and he traveled during the 1940s coast to coast via train by himself uh, to visit his parents and, you know, serially, you know, go from his mother's house to his father's house and vice versa. And it occurred to him as an adult that during this same time that he was traveling back and forth across the United States between his parents' homes, uh, other Jewish children in Europe uh, were traveling on what were called Holocaust trains. Um, he, he realized that he as a Jew in the United States was you know, traveling between his parents' homes and uh, other children during this time were traveling in some cases to their death. And so he interviewed a number of people about their experiences. He interviewed a, a, a Pullman porter uh, who had worked on trains, including you know ones that he might have ridden on when he was a child in the United States. And he interviewed a few Holocaust survivors who had been children who had traveled on Holocaust trains in Europe. And he composed a, a really beautiful piece that drew for its melodic inspiration on the melody in the voices right in those recordings cool. so he i think he originally did it on on tape loops and then uh i think maybe it, it can also be performed on like a, a sampling keyboard um but it is it is a beautiful and haunting piece that is you know it, when it comes to <laughs> When it comes to new music and Steve Reich particularly, weirdly one of his more hummable tunes, <laughs> um, both because the presence of language kind of stimulates the remembering part of your brain, but also because there is so much melody in speech. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was reminded as we heard those little pieces of tape and they grew more and more abstract hearing people say crayon over and over. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought Jacob did a really nice job. Jen, maybe you could play, before we hear Jacob's, maybe we could play just a little bit of the Kronos Quartet original recording of, of Steve Reich's Different Trains. Just a few seconds. Thank you. 
And then uh, Jacob sent us his version. William, you need to go get your crowns. William, you need to go get your crowns. The docket is clear. That's it for another episode of Judge John Hodgman. Our producer is Jennifer Marmer. The rest of our team is Jennifer Marmer. Follow us on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and at Hodgman. We're on Instagram at Judge John Hodgman. Make sure to hashtag your Judge John Hodgman tweets, hashtag JJHO. And check us out on the Maximum Fun subreddit to chat about this week's episode. That's MaximumFun.reddit.com. Submit your cases at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO or email Hodgman at MaximumFun.org. We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Hey guys, you need to get your crown belt. Hey guys, you need to get your crown belt. Hey guys, you need to get your crown belt. Hey, you know what? I'm going to Ferris Bueller you. You still here? What are you doing here? You think there's going to be a post credit sequence every week? Can't do that. Not every week. Go home. You got enough content this week. Be glad you got that cool song. Thanks, Jacob. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.